Young, back to throw. In trouble, he's going to be sacked. No, gets away. He runs, gets away again, goes to the 40, gets away again, to the 35, cuts back at the 30, to the 20, the 50, the 10. He dies, touchdown, 49ers. The 49ers have their first win of the season in a 30 to 27 nail biter as it turned out to be in the end win over the Detroit lions, not everything looked good. There were some good, some bad. The 49ers still have some issues. There are lingering questions about Jimmy Garoppolo and the play calling. There's lingering questions about the pass rush and the defensive backs. We'll get into all that and more. It's the 49ers web zone, no huddle podcast with Zane Nackley and Al Sacco. Al, how you doing, man? Doing good, Zane. And yeah, like you said, <laughs> that win almost feels like a loss in, in in a way because there were so many issues and so many things that kind of stuck out. But look, I think there's time to correct those things. And we'll get into what we saw in the game and, and what we expect to see next week and where we think this team's headed. But one of the themes we wanted to get to in this show was if the 49ers front office is being too conservative when it comes to making big moves or if the slow play sort of build the roster from the ground up approach that they're taking is the right way to go. And, you know, there was a Josh Gordon thing that happened this week and, and we'll get into that to see if the Niners maybe should have, should have made a move. And then there's guys like Alan Robinson, Khalil Mack and what should they have done? So it's going to be a good discussion. I'm looking forward to having that with Zane because him and I haven't really talked about it yet. So I don't, I don't know where, where his head is at with it. And I certainly have my thoughts on it But before we do that. I'm really excited to have on the show, the executive producer, of NBC um, Sports Radio and NBCSN's Pro Football Talk Live with Mike Florio. Rob Guerrera, uh, you may know him as Stats. He was on ESPN with Mike and Mike for a while as well, and he's a huge Niners fan. It was a great conversation, and here it is. He is the executive producer of NBC Sports Radio and NBCSN's Pro Football Talk Live with Mike Florio, and he's also a huge 49ers fan. Welcome to the show, Stats, Rob Guerrero. Rob, thanks for coming on. Oh, anytime, Al. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because watching you from afar, you've had such a cool career. And you started out at Mike and Mike on ESPN, and then you move over to NBC. Can you kind of take me through how you got started at ESPN and, and how you ended up where you are now? Sure. Uh, I actually started at ESPN uh, as an intern, believe it or not. I was working at... Uh, college and pro football on the weekends helping out with their shows on espn radio and you know i got lucky one day somebody on mike and mike got sick i filled in they liked what i did and uh they kept me on after my internship ended and i ended up staying with them for about uh six years and then um when nbc sports radio started one of the uh hosts that i used to work with on mike and mike he uh got a show on nbc sports radio so he sort of recruited me to jump ship. So I left in 2012, I left ESPN and uh, I've been with NBC sports radio ever since. Now ESPN is definitely going in a direction. I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, and, and one of the shows that I, I always really liked was Mike and Mike. I mean, it's fun. I, I always really looked forward to turning it on. Were you shocked that they broke that up? Um, no, just because uh, you know, I worked with those guys for a long time, so I got to know them a little bit, and I got to, I always got the sense that um, Greeny didn't want to do that forever. You know, I mean, they mm-hmm. they've been together for so long. He, everybody needs a change after after a certain period of time, and he wanted to sort of stretch his wings a little bit and do something new. And uh, so I, I didn't know it was going to happen then, but I did assume eventually that uh, they would both move on to different things. 
Now, in terms of the job that you do now with, with Mike Florio producing the show, and, and you, you guys are great, what's an average day like for you in terms of booking, working on the show, that sort of thing? Uh, well, the day starts at 3 a.m. That's when the alarm goes off. And, uh, you know, up at 3, usually into the office around 4.30. And I spend the bulk of my morning before the show just combing through the sound, uh, press conferences, seeing what mm-hmm. different people said, trying to collect the audio for that day's show. But the easiest part of my day, honestly, is probably seven to nine when the show's on the air. Because <laughs> by that point, the show is, you know, we've planned out the show. We have a general outline of where we want to go. We change things up on the fly when news dictates. But for the most part, we know uh, where we're going. And it's just a matter of executing the, the plan. After the show is over is sort of really when the work begins. You know, we, we all huddle up together as a team come up with a wish list of guests who we want to talk to this week, sort of also try and take a bigger picture view of things, look a week ahead, you know, a week in advance, two weeks in advance, what's coming up, are there any, you know, anniversaries, or remember when this happened, or what kind of production do we need? It's it's really a team effort, and uh, I'm lucky because I love pretty much everybody that works on the show. Everybody really has a passion for it, and I think that's probably the biggest thing you need, and I think that comes through when you watch the show. Now, are you one of the main guys in booking guests for the show? Uh, yes, we. I'm not the only person that books guests, um, but there's a couple of different people that do, and we sort of huddle up. And it's the kind of thing where you know, a lot of guest booking is relationships. It's not what you mm-hmm. know; it's who you know, as they say. Mm-hmm. So we'll sort of come up with a list of who we want, and then whoever has the best relationship, or or maybe you know, a lead on somebody, is that's usually the person that takes the lead. It's always so cool to hear the behind the scenes stories with that because, you know, you just see the finished product on air for a couple hours or whatever it is, but it sounds like you guys are putting in really long days. Uh, Yeah, you know, everybody, I don't like to make a big deal out of, you know, we work so hard. Everybody works hard. Um, It's just the nature of the job, I think. I mean, you know, most of the sports take place at night. And so Mm -hmm. there are some days where you literally can't do anything because, the sports haven't happened yet. You know, you need the game to go on. And so I I think a lot of it, you know, is just a a reaction to when the things take place and then, you know, how you react to them. And and sometimes like, you know, certain nights when Aaron Rodgers comes back from 20 points down, you can't go to sleep right after that game. I'm I'm too jazzed up. I'm too, uh, you know, the adrenaline pumping. I couldn't believe it. So it's just sort of the nature of, uh, of how sports work. Now, you're a big 49ers fan. How did that come about? Did you grow up on the West Coast? How did you start liking the Niners? No, I'm uh, born and raised in Connecticut, actually. Um, But I've always, you know, I never liked the idea that, well, okay, I live in Connecticut, so I have to choose between the Giants or the Jets or the Patriots. Like, there's 32 teams. Well, there wasn't at that point. But, you know, there's, there's all these teams out there. I can pick anyone that I want. And it just so happens, you know, when you're born in 1985, and you're looking at who to root for for football. There's only one team that comes to them to the forefront of the picture, and that's the 49ers. And uh, I've been with them ever since, and haven't regretted a minute of it. It's great. It's good to see another East Coast Niners fan. I, I was born and raised in in New York State, so yeah, it was the same thing for me. You grew up in the '80s with Montana and Rice, and you know, I was I was pretty much hooked from there. And this it's it's been rough for us lately. You know, other than those Harbaugh years, it's it's been it's been a rough patch for about 15 years or so. But there was a lot of a lot of promise come into this season and saw how these first two games went and probably not quite what a lot of people expected. What's your take on this team after the first two games? They're pretty much what I expected, to be honest with you. I thought they played really 
Well, in Minnesota against the Vikings, especially when the Vikings coaching staff has extra time to prepare, they missed a lot of opportunities in that Vikings game. Pierre Garçon dropped a pass that was in his hands in the end zone. Alfred Morris fumbled inside the red zone. George Kittle was open in the end zone, and Garoppolo saw him and threw it and just threw high. They played really well in Minnesota, even though they didn't always execute. Last week against Detroit, everything seemed to be great up until the fourth quarter, and then the defense kind of fell apart as the Lions went into emergency mode. I thought they played mm-hmm. worse last week than they did in week one, to be honest with you. Me too. Me too. And you mentioned Garoppolo. He just, I don't know, he doesn't look comfortable to me yet. And I don't know if he's just a little jacked up, if he's playing a little bit tight, if he's trying to force some things. Obviously, isn't playing to the level he was last year, but he feels like, I feel like he's playing as if there's a little bit of a weight on his shoulder right now. What, what do you think of him after the first two games? I think that's that's accurate. You know, he's been he's the third most sacked quarterback in the entire league. Only Tyrod Taylor and Russell Wilson have been sacked more than Jimmy Garoppolo. Uh, I think he's been a victim of some shoddy line play, some injuries on the O line, and to be honest, a wide receiver group that without Marquise Goodwin is not exactly known for separating from defensive backs. And so I Mm -hmm. think sometimes what happens with Jimmy is that he's waiting for somebody to try and get open so he can move the ball down the field and these guys just aren't separating as much as they were last year and so he's taking a lot of sacks and it's really keeping it's really holding the offense back i agree with you on goodwin and maybe we didn't appreciate how much he really means to this offense whether it's it's taking the top off a of defense or just the fact that garoppolo trusts him he had 43 targets with garoppolo last year which was by far the most this wide receiver group as a whole scares me a little bit especially without goodwin do you think they need more there? Yes, absolutely. I think the thing with this wide receiver group, it's not very deep, and they, they need everybody on the field at the same time to really be effective in the way the team wants. Like you mentioned, Marquise Goodwin, he takes the top off the defense. That's awesome. Pierre Garçon is, is a physical possession receiver. That's great. Trent Taylor, slot receiver. He's awesome. But they all can only sort of do one thing. And when they're not there, I don't know that there's anybody else that can pick up the slack. I mean, Trent Taylor was on the bench for 75% of the snaps last week, and he's the guy that Jimmy loved to go to on third down. But when Goodwin's not there, the roles for everybody change, and I don't know that they have the depth on this roster, especially the receiving core right now, to be able to overcome that. Taylor played 16 snaps and had two targets, which was just amazing to me that, that he wasn't used. And obviously everything happened with Josh Gordon and it happened quickly where he was available. And then the Patriots swooped in and got him. Did you want the Niners to make a push for Gordon? I have been sort of talking out of both sides of my mouth because the desperate fan in me says, yes, this is, you know, we need a big play wide receiver. But when I look at it rationally, we're talking about a guy that's played in six games since 2015. He was suspended Mm -hmm. in 2013, 2014, 2015 and 2016, you know, so you're really rolling the dice with Josh Goodwin. And I think the interest in him sort of shows which teams are sort of desperate. I mean, that's the guy you're pinning your hopes to the guy that's been suspended every year since 2013. Yes, he's talented, but he's given no indication right now that that football is a priority for him and that he's overcome some of the addiction issues that he's had. For me, it wasn't so much 
just Josh Gordon, the player. It was more about the Niners sort of taking a chance and just jumping in and, and getting someone to help. And it was telling to me that they were interested and they came out and said they were interested because they supposedly had this wide receiver group that they were really high on. But then this guy comes available and, and Lynch and Shanahan both admitted, yeah, yeah, we were, we were looking at him. And, and sort of the theme of this show is that we're going to talk about are the Niners too conservative in the front office when it when it comes to making a big move or is slow playing this thing the right way to go? And I look at guys like, I don't know if Cleo Mack was ever a reality because he costs so much contract-wise and picks everything else, but I look at somebody like Allen Robinson who I thought really could have helped them this year and moving forward. How do you feel about this front office? Are they being too conservative or, or do you like sort of the slow built from within role that they're doing? I like what they're doing. You know, they were in on Josh Gordon, but they just because they were in on it doesn't mean they were going to overpay. And honestly, if they gave up a fourth round pick for Josh Gordon, I would have probably thought that was too much. But they were involved. They were involved on Khalil Mack. I, what I heard was basically that they were kind of thinking that they would do what the Rams were thinking, which was make a play for Mack, try to bring him in for one year, and then trade him after the season to try and get some sort of return. I think that this Niners front office is willing to make a splash when necessary. I mean, John Lynch asked Bill Belichick if he'd be willing to trade Tom Brady. I think that they're willing there, but I think they're also smart and they know that they don't want to overextend themselves on any one player. And, you know, this Antonio Brown thing has kind of calmed down a little bit with his agent sort of throwing water on, on the trade speculation. But I wouldn't have been shocked if the Niners made a big play for Antonio Brown if, in fact, he were on the market. I think they're willing to make a big move, but they're not going to go crazy just to make that big splash. They have a price in mind, and if they don't get it, they don't act. Do you think, though, that at some point they have to go past that price? Are they always going to kind of be left standing at the altar type thing if they don't sort of say, okay, we're going to jump at this. If we get burned, we get burned. But this is the type of player who, who could help us, and, and we're going to outbid you. Don't you think at some point maybe they have to take that jump? I definitely think there is a time and place for that. But I don't think the team is in a spot right now where you make that kind of move. If you're a team that's into the playoffs and maybe the conference championship for one, two, three years in a row, you know, then I think maybe you say, hey, we need one more piece to get us over the top. And even if it hurts us a year from now or two years from now, it's going to be worth it because we're going to go all in and make a run at this thing. I know that there was a lot of optimism going into the season with the 49ers. I was optimistic. I was on record as saying that if Jimmy Garoppolo played all 16 games, I thought the Niners were going to play in the NFC title game. Seeing them on the field now, I've sort of tempered that a little bit. I don't think they're at that point yet. You know, this isn't the, the, John, the Jim Harbaugh 49ers in 2012 or 2013. They're not ready for that kind of big splash move that may hurt them down the line quite yet. Maybe next year, but not now. One thing that's really sticking out to me in the early going is the amount of time, playing time, I should say, that Solomon Thomas is getting. He's on the field less than half the time right now. And I mean, if they took the overall number three overall pick last year and he's he's just a rotation rotational defensive lineman it just feels like such a misfire to me what what do you think is going on there the coaching staff you know they're trying to say all the right things but talk is cheap don't you know i don't want to hear what you say i want to see what you do and the the snaps are telling you're right his snaps are decreasing he's he's a part-time player right now and when you look at some of the possible alternatives the niners could have taken at that point in the draft jamal adams 
he's the first guy that comes to mind. It was definitely a misfire. Now, I think getting Ruben Foster also in that first round, it, you know, makes up for that a lot because yep. he looks like an absolute stud. But, you know, nobody bats a thousand. I think that this team has made a lot of really smart moves in the draft and gotten significant contributions, especially from some later round picks. But I don't know how you look at Solomon Thomas right now as anything more, anything else other than a disappointment at this point. You know, he's still very young, but right now the, he seems to be in the doghouse and not getting out of it anytime soon. You know, on the flip side, you have DeForest Buckner, who looks like he's going to make a play for Defensive Player of the Year. He's just been absolutely dominant. He already has three and a half sacks. The rest of the team only has one and a half sacks, and he's been absolutely terrific. And I only I imagine what he could be if they actually had someone coming off of the edge. Were you surprised that they didn't address edge this year? Do you think they were smart waiting, maybe because there weren't the players that they like there? Yeah, I think what you're finding now is teams have figured out that it, it basically goes quarterback, pass rusher, secondary help. Those are the three big cornerstones. And the, the pass rushers just they're who was available for them to go out and get to. These guys just aren't there. And you know, you could overspend on what's out there, but that's not necessarily going to help your team. You know, it doesn't matter how much you spend on the guy. It matters how good he is. And, and they didn't see the value there. And, and frankly, neither did I. I mean, you watch I, Nick Bosa coming out. If he comes out this year, he's going to be a top five pick, maybe a top three pick, because you just don't get those guys any other way. Unless John Gruden comes back out of retirement and ridiculously trades Khalil Mack to the Chicago Bears. Other than that, <laughs> the, the pass rushing help is just not out there. And looking at the secondary, Witherspoon had a really tough game, and I, I heard afterwards that he had a bit of an ankle issue going on, but he gave up eight catches on 12 targets and two TDs. And that secondary, other than Sherman, really looked bad. But I thought they played pretty well against Minnesota. Do you think this was just a blip, or, or is there more to be worried about here? Their secondary is young. Sherman obviously isn't, but everybody else there, you know, they're still getting their sea legs, and... From the passing charts that I saw, Matthew Stafford basically just ignored Richard Sherman's side of the field. He did not <laughs> yeah, want to throw that. there. And so if that's the case, Witherspoon's the guy that's going to get, you know, he's going to get picked on. Now, I agree, you know, he had an ankle and he didn't have his best game. But ultimately, I still think it's to the 49ers' advantage if they know and they can sort of predict which side of the field teams are going to go to. So even though Witherspoon struggled, I think by the end of the year, the secondary is going to look a lot better than it has so far. Do you think Reuben Foster coming back can uh, make a big difference on this defense, really ignite a fire under them? Huge. Huge. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see he and Fred Warner as the linebackers in the middle of the field. You know, I remember Patrick Willis and Navarro Bowman. That was pretty damn good back in the day. Not saying these two are going to be that good, but they can set the tone for the entire defense. You know, it's almost like baseball when you acquire a big slugger. It lengthens your lineup. It makes the rest of your batting order that much harder to deal with because everybody goes down one slot, essentially. I think that can happen with the 49ers roster. He's going to add tackling because God knows they've missed a ton of tackles the first two weeks. He's going to add intensity, and he's going to help take the pressure off of DeForest Buckner and some of the other players on that defense. And you mentioned the rookies, and Fred Warner has been sensational, and McGlinchey and Pettis, you know, there's going to be ups and downs, but they've definitely showed promise. What's your take on this rookie class so far? I know it's early, but it looks like they could, they're here to stay, doesn't it? Oh, it's absolutely encouraging. I mean, I was watching a little Brian Baldinger who said that Fred Warner was the best rookie that he's seen on the field. 
And that's a pretty high praise considering some of the other rookies that we've seen. But Pettis, you know, I don't know if he's going to ever be a number one wide receiver, but he clearly has value already. I mean, McGlinchey's a rookie and has to right guard in this first ever game because so many guys went down. And he played great. He stepped it up big time. He, he looks like an absolute stud, definitely an heir to Joe Staley, which I love. And I even think they're going to get contributions from Richie James and DJ Reed. I think that this, that this draft class is very deep. And as a whole, I know we talked about Solomon Thomas, but overall, this new regime, I think they've done very well in the draft. Stats, this was great, buddy. We really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you again to Rob Guerrera, a.k.a. Stats, for joining us. And Al, it's really cool to have people like that on the show that are kind of national media people, but they're also fans of the 49ers. So you kind of get that feel of how the rest of the country really feels about the team. And it's, I always love listening to people like that. Yeah, it's cool. And him and I were talking off the air about how social media kind of you know brings people together. In, in, Rob's a fan of the 49ers and, and that's kind of how I got to know him a little bit and you know obviously I knew him from Mike and Mike and, and from um, Pro Football Talk Live with Mike Florio so it was cool to get to know him a little bit and he's really passionate about the Niners so it, it was fun I'm, I'm sure the fans enjoyed it it was a good conversation yeah and these guys usually they're supposed to be like impartial when they're like national media types but there's certain people that really love the 49ers Peter Schrager is another one and hopefully we can have him on the show one day as well but uh, it's it's great to have people like Rob on the show to to really expand to see what what they think about the team and there's yeah. there's a lot to think and say about this team Al I mean there's a lot to mm-hmm. digest from this game there is yeah and Lots to get into, but before we do that, I, I wanted to touch on this Josh Gordon thing because I've kind of been on a Twitter rampage about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. And look, let me say this. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination that Josh Gordon is the savior of this team. I, I mean, the guy's barely played in how many years, and he has demons and issues. I just kind of thought with him, look, the Niners have issues at receiver, especially without Marquise Goodwin there, and we expect him back this week or soon, very soon. But there's still some issues there, and they need help at the skill positions. And Gordon was out there to be had, and to me, there's there's no risk at all because you're not really going to – you don't owe much money. You can just cut him if you need to. But the reward could have been really high when he's on. He's, he's, a, he's a terrific player, and, and the Patriots went out and got him. You know, The Patriots are, are the model organization in the league, really, and they went out and made the move. And I guess sort of where my frustration lies with the Niners, and I, I feel a lot of fans – are kind of on the same boat with me in this is they're always in the mix for people, but they never really make that move. Mm-hmm. They haven't made that move for that star player. And, and the examples that I'll throw out there, I mean, I don't want to break Chad Balky into it because they were in on everybody on their terms and they were never going to sign anybody. It's that, that regime's long gone. I'm talking about the new regime now. And look, I think they've made some great moves, great moves to build the team from the ground up. Some smart free agent signings here and there. But I feel like there were difference makers out there to be had. And to me, Allen Robinson was a guy that I really felt like they, they should have gone after in the offseason. And you look at his contract, he didn't get paid a ton of money. He got three years, $42 million. And really only two of those years are really guaranteed. They, there's an out in that contract after two years. And I just saw a guy like that and I said, they could bring him in. He's young. He could gel with Garoppolo they could have him even even if he has a slow season this year then 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 
he gets used to the offense. He gets healthy after knee surgery and, and he could jump into it the year after, but he's done well so far with the bears this year He has 14 catches. I thought they should have made a play for a guy like that. I thought it could have made a huge difference this year when you look at Khalil Mack. And I know the contract was a lot and I know the Raiders gave up two firsts for him, but to me, a guy like Khalil Mack makes the 49ers a super bowl contender now. So you can say, Oh, you know, well we got to, you know, build this from the ground up and be patient and, the window is a little bit open. If you get Cleo Mack, the window gets thrown wide open because you, you pair him with DeForest Buckner and Reuben Foster and Fred Warner and Richard Sherman. And all of a sudden you have a devastating defense and you know, the offense is eventually we think going to be pretty good. Niners ready to compete now. And then there's a guy like, like Gordon out there. I just feel like just take a chance, man, bring this kind of talent in, see what he can do. It's not going to lose you anything. What would it lose you? a mid to late round draft pick take the shot see if it helps it could be the difference i always say the nfl a couple plays can be the difference between two or three wins between 11 and 5 or 10 and 6 or or, or 7 and 9 take the chance to bring these guys in could it blow up in your face sure it might but at some point at some point the niners are going to have to take a risk they're going to have to maybe overpay Sometimes to bring in these people, you have to overpay. And I'm not saying do that for five guys. The Niners, what, have the third most salary cap room in the NFL? They never spend their money. Mm-hmm. They have the money. What are, you, what are you saving it for? There's two guys. There's one guy you're going to pay right now, DeForest Buckner. Who else are you paying? Who else are you paying? They're mm-hmm. paying anybody else. It's like, why are you saving this money year after year after year? Don't tell me Allen Robinson wouldn't have helped this year. He would have. And, and I, I understand you, you want to build things for the future. How is bringing one guy in like that going to hurt the future? How is it going to hurt your salary cap? You pay him this year when you got $40 million and then you're getting rid of guys like Ward and Garcon next year. Anyway, that's going to free up what another 20 million or whatever it is. Tons of money. They have tons of money and you don't know if a Robinson's going to be available again for Khalil Mack. Well, you don't want to bring, you, you don't want to give up first round picks. You're spending a first round pick on a pass rusher probably anyway, next year, even mm. if you spend your next two first round picks on pass rushers, you hope they can equal up to what Khalil Mack is. He might be the best defense player in the league in the league. If you're going to make a difference in the NFL and if you're going to be a Super Bowl contender, you cannot surround your franchise quarterback with a bunch of role players. You need to get stars. You need to be aggressive. You need to make these moves. And people want to say like, oh, well, you know, the Patriots don't have great receivers. The Patriots have maybe the best tight end in the history of football. Don't tell me that guy doesn't make a difference. He -hmm. does. I just, to me, I understand the approach where you want, where I think what the 49ers are doing is smart in a way, but to me, at some point, they have to take a risk. They have to be aggressive or the window is going to stay kind of sort of open for the next four years. And they're never really going to be an upper echelon Super Bowl contender. The Josh Gordon trade ended up being a fifth round pick from the Patriots and the Browns were going to send them. A, it's a conditional seventh from the Browns back to the Patriots. If Josh Gordon doesn't play at least 10 games this season. So there is literally no risk in any of this. I mean, the risk is that he could damage your locker room, but I mean, in that locker room, are they really that, are they really that swayable? Uh, are they really that impressionable in that, in that locker room over there? It's all business in, in new England. It's all about winning. It's all about the culture. So I have, so I have mixed feelings on this Al. Like I feel, I feel the way that you do. I feel that they've been a little bit timid as far as trying to get, a-list blue chip players they got a, so let's let's break down what they did in the offseason they got a lot of good talent in the offseason they brought Jarek mckinnon in 
They brought Weston Richburg in. They drafted Michael McGlinchey. They traded up for Dante Pettis. They got Fred Warner in the draft. All of those players are significantly contributing right now, except for McKinnon, who got hurt, but he's expected to. Um, they ended up bringing in Richard Sherman, who arguably is the best player on your defense outside of DeForest Buckner. I mean, he's been amazing for the first two games. Nobody's throwing at him because he's always covering the guys like glue. So in that sense, they did a good job. And Sherman was the big splash, which, which made a huge difference on the defense. I don't know what they would do without him because obviously with Akela Weatherspoon, he has issues, which we'll get into later. But really, they don't like, if you think of blue chip players, what blue chip players did they bring in besides Sherman this year? Nobody, none of these guys you can really build a franchise around. Even Sherman is towards the end of his career. Like he's, he said himself, he's going to play four to five more years. So you really have probably two to three years of prime Richard Sherman left. And his contract is a three-year contract. So after that, you really don't have anybody that you can build around that you've, that you've brought in. Jarek McKinnon's a nice piece. He's a, he's a really nice player, but he's never had that starting running back RB one role in his career. He's always been, a role player. He's always been the backup or the third down back. And when he started getting a full load, he started getting hurt in, in training camp. He had non con a, a bunch of non-contact injuries finally culminating in the torn ACL. They, the, the receivers can't get, they, they had trouble getting open against Detroit. And I, I can't help but think, yes, a guy like Josh Gordon would have helped. Absolutely. I think that these guys don't come available all the time. And I don't think that John Lynch realizes that. Like, I think that his inexperience as GM a little bit is showing. And that's not a sliding as John Lynch. He's brought he's brought in a lot of good players. They flipped this entire roster in two years, which was amazing. And they've done a really, really good job. But at this point, you've got a franchise quarterback, like you said, Al, and you can't just surround him with a bunch of spare parts. You need other blue chip players around him. That's how you build a team. And you had a bunch of those available. You had one available in Josh Gordon. You had another available in Khalil Mack. Another one is available in Le'Veon Bell. We'll see what they do. And right now... To me, like quote unquote, doing due diligence is is only going to take you so far. And like I said, you're a year ahead of me, so I'm basically going to give them this year to to kind of build the team. Because look, we didn't expect them to be competing this year, anyways. They the, the biggest move that honestly, I like that they made is the Garoppolo move, and that they absolutely deserve credit for that because John Lynch made that call to Belichick, and, and they made it happen. But now that that move has happened you need to be able to build off of that. Like the, the rebuilding curve is different now because now everything is accelerated. You can't go with the same sort of conservative mentality that you had before, because now you have your quarterback, you know who that guy is. It's not Brian Hoyer or CJ Beathard back there. That's, that's the, the, the placeholder. The idea was that they would build the team first. They would build a foundation and then they would insert the quarterback into that picture at the very last point so that the team would be ripe you insert a franchise quarterback into that right team and he can take them to the next level. They ended up doing it backwards, not by their own, not by their own fault. It was, it was an awesome trade. It was a great trade, but it just so worked out that like, just so happened that Jimmy Garoppolo came first. Now I'm basically saying that they have this year to build their, their roster to be able to absorb the cap hit of a blue chip player next year or a blue chip draft pick or whatever you decide to do next year. What bothers me is that you're pretty much putting all of your eggs in next year's basket to, to rebuild this team because, oh, look, this is next year's like looking three years. It's year three of the rebuild. And by that time, if you're not competing or at least close to competing, you're, you're on the hot seat if you're John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan. Like, no more honeymoon. That's it. Like, it took you two years to get to this point to flip the roster. That's totally fine. I'm totally cool with their lack of activity right now. I get it. I understand. But if you do the same thing next year, 
then I've got a problem with it because then that's you're basically two and a half of Garoppolo. You're halfway through your contract if you're Lynch and Shanahan, and you you should have a team that's ready to compete. So did they did they sit on their hands a little bit? I mean, yes and no. I feel like they they were a little bit cautious with this whole Josh Gordon thing. And I, I understand that they don't want to insert him into a locker room that's building and that seems like they have good chemistry and they don't want to stunt Jimmy G's growth by be, giving him a receiver that could possibly cause him problems. But at the same token, like you, you have to have guys that are blue chip players and you can't just have one or two guys like that right now. Who are the guys that are replaceable on this roster? Al? Like, look, let's look at it. Let's break it down. The only guys that aren't replaceable on this roster are Joe Staley, Jimmy Garoppolo, Richard Sherman, DeForest Buckner, and Ruben Foster. That's it. Everybody else is replaceable. So they can't go into this thinking that, oh, well, we have Cassius Marsh, so we don't need to trade for Khalil Mack. And that's, that's what I feel like they, they, they're kind of doing. They are overestimating the talent that they have on their roster and it's causing, to, causing them to affect their personnel decisions. Now, I'll close, I'll close my side of the discussion by saying this. I think they've done a really good job thus far. The roster was a total mess when John oh, took over last yep. year. I think that John Lynch has done an excellent job with what he's been given to create competi- a competitive team. It took them nine weeks to get their first win last year. They got in the, in the second week of the season. This team last year would not have won this game against the Lions. They would have crumbled. And I'm proud of them for winning that game. It wasn't pretty. But the fact that they got that win out of the way in the second week of the season shows you how far they've come. And that's credit to John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan, Adam Peters, and all the front office to be, to be able to do that. Now, you have to now build off of that next year. It's totally cool. You're kind of standing pat this year. You want to see how everything works out. I totally support it. But next year, you have to be active both in free agency and being aggressive in the draft. That's, that's the honeymoon's over by next year. See, to me, and, and maybe I jumped the gun a little bit too much, but to me, once you had Garoppolo in that fold and you had the franchise quarterback, your rebuild is essentially over. Now you need to start surrounding that franchise quarterback with winning pieces because they were a winning team at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and I, I guess I was mistaken, but I thought when they signed Richard Sherman, I'm like, okay, they're going for it. Because mm-hmm. Richard Sherman is a win-now move. Mm-hmm. It's a win-now move. What is he, 30 years old? He's only got a couple of years left. Yeah. Probably. He's playing, you know, he's, he's a pretty good so far. He's looked really good so far, but he's probably only got a couple of years left. So when they did that, and then I heard, oh, maybe they have some interest in Allen Robinson. I'm like, all right, they're going for it. Mm-hmm. They're going to put these these pieces around Garoppolo. They're they're going to be really aggressive this offseason. And then they weren't. And I guess maybe I was just taken aback by it. And I know Goodwin's not there. And I know Goodwin is his favorite receiver. He targeted Goodwin 43 times last year. And no other receiver had more than 20. So Goodwin's his guy and he hasn't been there. But if you look at the way Garoppolo is playing right now in the way that he played last week, and he had to, he, his stats were good. But if you watch the games, he's pressing. He's overthrowing. He's forcing the ball. He's doing things that you didn't expect to see him do. And I think it's because he's, he's putting a lot on his shoulders and it'll pass. He's going to settle in. He's too good to keep playing like this, but the guys out there are not getting separation separation. Kevin Jones put out a tweet today that I saw that 27.1% of Garoppolo's throws have been um, in tight windows where the defender is at least one yard away from the receiver. These guys are not getting separation. Garoppolo has the worst QB rating on third down of any quarterback in the league. It's 28.8. On the flip side, Ryan Fitzpatrick is 157.1. So that's how poorly he's he's playing right now. And if, if you look at the receivers on this team, Pierre Garçon's got 10 targets. 
in two games, he has six catches for 78 yards. Trent Taylor has eight targets in two games. He has four catches for 28 yards. Trent Taylor was on the field for 16 snaps last game. He mm-hmm. had two targets. He didn't catch a ball. Dante Pettis, seven targets, three catches, 96 yards. Kendrick Bourne, two targets, one catch for four yards. These receivers are not getting it done. And if you look at just the receivers for the Niners over the, over the past few years, last season, Zane, the 49ers receivers had seven touchdown catches. Seven last mm-hmm. season. In the last 50 games for the Niners, and I know you're going back a couple regimes or whatever, if 27 touchdown catches in the last 50 games, that's atrocious. In 2015, they had 10 touchdown catches. In 2016, they had eight. In 2017, they had seven. In this year so far, they have two. Antonio Brown by himself has 34 catches, 34 touchdown catches in his last 50 games. That's more than every seven more than every 49er receiver. They don't have weapons. They don't have it. And Garoppolo is pressing because of it. Now, in fairness to all of this, I'm going to say two things to 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 look at the completely look at the other side of this. In the Niners' last four games, they've scored 30 plus points three times. Mm-hmm. Pretty damn good. It's even better when you consider they only scored 30 plus points three times in the previous 47 games. Mm-hmm. So they're playing offense like we haven't seen in a while, and maybe we should you know, be thankful that we're complaining about this and, and they're, they're still putting up points and they were only a few drop passes probably from scoring 30 in Minnesota. So it's like, what are you complaining about? We're seeing how good they can be in almost feeling like they're being held back because, because they're maybe not bringing in these other people. That's the frustrating thing to me. So do I think they're going to turn it around? Yeah. Look, this offense was built this season. The expectation was that your two main weapons were going to be Jarek McKinnon and Marquise Goodwin. They mm-hmm. haven't been there. And McKinnon's not going to be there, obviously, but Goodwin has not been there. And without those two guys, you're seeing that the offense is suffering. And I never thought this time last year I'd be saying Marquise Goodwin is so important, but he is. He takes the top off of defense. He has a rapport with Garoppolo. He's got speed that they need that can open up game the game for everybody else. So feel like we do, you know, and again, listen, we have a show we need to react on weekly, and this is what we're reacting to right now, what we just saw. Do I think this is going to continue all year? No, I, I don't. I think in the second half of the season, the 49ers offense is going to be humming. I, I really, but right now this is what we have to react to. And in the frustrations that we have, because if there was an Allen Robinson there, if maybe they did bring in a Josh Gordon, it, it just, it just helps. You know what I mean? It's, it's mm-hmm. not making any worse. That's making you better. And I guess that's my frustration is that even though I still think they're, they're, they're pretty good and going to get better, they could be even better if they just took that chance. Uh, Goodwin and McKinnon were pretty much the only home run hitters on the 49ers offense. Like Dante Pettis is a really good piece. And I, I'm really happy that, that he's kind of emerging in, in his role, but he's only, he's only a rookie and you can't really count on a rookie to be able to be that game breaking guy, unless you have like a Randy Moss or Terrell Owens, even Terrell Owens took three years to really come into his own. Oh, it takes so, time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, so the, so get this, the top receiver, there was a few guys that were targeted four times. Brita, Garcon, Kittle, and Juszczyk were each targeted four times in this game. There was no receiver that had more than four catches. Garcon caught all four for, for 57, and he was kind of like the, the quote-unquote go-to guy. You heard Kyle Shanahan, well, for those of you who didn't hear, but Kyle Shanahan mentioned in the press conference following the game that the Lions were playing really close and they were holding and things like that. So my my thing is that's fine if they're holding and I get it. It's hard for you guys to run routes, but at the same time, 
you have the ability to control that to an extent by calling certain plays to free up your guys, like pick plays, moving the pocket, calling screen passes to your running backs. You have the ability to counteract that. It's not just like, oh, well, the defense is holding our guys, so we're just going to turtle in as an offense and we're not going to run our scheme. You can still counteract that. And as you said, a guy like Josh Gordon or Allen Robinson, both are big body wide receivers. Heck yeah, they would make a difference because they can take the top off a of defense. They can get up and be physical with guys. It doesn't matter if guys are pressing them. So I, I get what you're saying and I understand and I and I agree. I just I just hope that they do something about the, about it this offseason because Marquise Gordon is a really good player. I think that he's he's got the potential to be like a solid bona fide number one receiver. I mentioned at the end of last year and at the beginning of this year that he runs the entire route tree now. He's not just a deep threat. He's a really good player and he has a chance to be really special in his offense, but it has to be more than just Marquise Goodwin that you're looking for. They targeted Kittle the most out of anybody last week, because again, the same problem happened. Nobody could get open except for Kittle. And he was the mismatch on the linebacker. The same thing happened this week as well. They were trying to target Kittle. They were holding him and and it just didn't work out. They, this is not the type of ball distribution I want from Jimmy. I want, I want him to hit the open guy but I don't want him to start pressing and forcing it to guys just because he has to get rid of the ball. I think that Kyle Shanahan can do a better job of calling plays that can get the ball out of his hand quicker or check with me plays RPOs. There are a number of things that they can do that can counteract these things because honestly, Al, you're not going to find anybody now in the season. That's going to be a game breaker at receiver. You're not Josh Gordon was it like that was going to be the number one, sort of move that was going to happen because it just doesn't happen. You don't see guys getting released or traded in the middle of the season, except for obviously Jimmy Garoppolo last year. So they have to make do with what they have. And I have confidence that they can, but really like this takes me to another point that I was thinking about today, Al, like the problem that you have when you have a stopgap quarterback, like the 49ers did with Brian Hoyer last year. And then CJ Beathard is that you don't really know what your offense can really do because you're, basing your offense around the quarterback's limitations. So this is really, honestly speaking, the first time Kyle Shanahan's really been able to open up his entire playbook. Even Jimmy Garoppolo last year, Jimmy played with a quarter of the playbook last year. He didn't know all the plays. There'd be times where he was in the huddle where he would just call something random because he didn't know what Kyle was saying into the the headset. So now you're seeing Kyle Shanahan finally being able to use his entire playbook like he wanted to. And that's the issue that you have when you can't, have a franchise quarterback in your first year as a head coach. And you're seeing growing pains from Kyle Shanahan as well as a play caller. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I, I want to get into that in a bit, but I just want to see, I want to get your response first on this. I think, and, and we did say this, it's tough, you know, because we're like we're doing the show and, and we're covering the scene, but we're fans too. So, so the passionate part comes out in this. So, you know, I hope the listeners understand that and, and appreciate that. You know, we can look at this rationally, but we're also going to look at it emotionally. We're going to look at it both ways. So I gave you the emotional response. And I'll give you the rational one too. The rational one is that I knew this was coming. I said this numerous times in the off season that Garoppolo was going to have ups and downs, mm-hmm. that there was going to be learning curves that Shanahan is still learning as a head coach. And he is, I think Shanahan is a good play caller. I, I, there's some things I've been wondering what he's been doing this year, but overall we know what he what he's capable of. He's capable of being the best play caller in the league. He's capable of that as a head coach. Let's see. He's still learning. He's still young. You know, head coach is kind of the CEO, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if Kyle is a great CEO right now. He's a great offensive mind. I don't know if he's a great CEO right now and, and he's got to get there and, 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 you know, and he might, but we're seeing things, you know, some sloppy, some soft, sloppy play penalties, you know, boneheaded moves, poor tackling, 
a lot of sloppiness that I saw in the preseason and I was worried about. It's kind of carried over to the regular season. Now that stuff can change. It's a, a lot of teams are sloppy now. It's not what you look like in, in September. It's what you look like in November and December. Mm-hmm. So there's times. So yeah, the rational part of me says, yeah, this is going to take a little time. Look, the Niners might be like three and five after eight games. And then they can go this end of the season is set up to go on a little bit of a run. So if they're an eight and eight, nine and seven team, like we think that they are, maybe they're going to start out like three and five and maybe we have to kind of accept that. But yeah, I, I think that Kyle will grow as, as Garoppolo grows, as this team grows, he's going to be a good head coach. He, he is, he's got everything you need, but he's, that's a good point. He's, he's going to have growing pains too. And I guess we have to accept that and understand that and know that this season there's going to be some times where you're scratching your head and saying, what was he thinking? Yeah. I think everybody just needs to pump the brakes on everything. Literally just everything. Pump the brakes on anointing Jimmy, pump the brakes on anointing Kyle, pump the brakes on, Hey, we're making the playoffs. Just take a deep breath and let them build because clearly there were some times during the game and I, and I tweeted it out. I was so frustrated that I, I felt like this was Kyle Shanahan's worst called game since he got here in San Francisco. I really did because, and and that's not saying that he was terrible. It was still a pretty good game. They put up 30 points. It wasn't a bad game, but I felt like he could do much better because he is that good. And one series that sticks out to me, and and you're going to think about this right away, Al, is that the the series right before the half, the 49ers got the ball back with about two minutes and change, and they were at their own 10-yard line. Now, Detroit has all three of their timeouts. The Niners are looking to to score more points and they're up by i believe it was 13 7 at the time and uh, my whole thing is like okay you have to know situational football you have to know where you are on the field you have to know the situation and it doesn't seem like Kyle Shanahan knew that at that time they went on to throw the ball three straight times i believe Garoppolo uh took a sack on one of them as well and the final throw was from the end zone it was a screen pass that Juszczyk would have caught in the end zone, which was almost a safety because the referees basically kind of made a judgment call and they judged that Juszczyk was in the, was in the area, and he was. But they could have just as easily called it a safety, and it was below two minutes, so you can't even challenge that. And I was screaming at the TV, and I think I tweeted in all caps too. I'm like, run the damn ball. Like If you run into that situation again, here's how I would do. And I'll, we've, we've been told or asked by people on Twitter to provide more analysis, right? Which is fine. I love, I love doing that. So here's some analysis for you. When you have the ball with two minutes left or less at the end of a half, regardless of whether you're winning or losing and you're inside of your own 10, you need to run the ball and get the, get that clock moving no matter how many timeouts you have. My, here's what I would have done. The first play would have been a running play to Breda up the middle, maybe a draw play. And if you get five to seven yards, then, then you kind of go into hurry up mode and try to get that first down. Once you get that first down, you're going. That's it. Like it's no huddle after that, just like the podcast. And you're, you're going after that. You're going to go and try to move the ball down the field. You're going to try to conserve your timeouts. You're really trying to push. If you get to the 25 plus yard line and you're out of the shadow of your own end zone, that's when you go for it. That's when you really turn it on. But the, the first play in a no huddle drive at the end of half should absolutely, if you're backed up in your own end, every single time, hundred percent of the time should be a run to get that clock going. Because even if the 49ers punted on that drive, you would have burnt, you would have made Detroit burn all of their timeouts. And then they don't have time to drive back and, and kick a field goal at the end. Because all of those little things are end up what end up losing you games in close games and what end up making games closer. 
because that's the three points that you can't respond to because literally I kicked it at the end of the half. You can't go down and respond to that. Now the 49ers got a great return from DJ Reed at the beginning of the second half, which is awesome by the way. And I'll talk about that later, but they got that great return that put them in business. Then they got that touchdown right away. But at the same time, you can't just be giving away points at the end of the half. So for me, I would have ran the ball. I would have got the clock going. I would have made Detroit use their timeouts. And if I'm at the 30, 35 yard line, then I'm going, all right, Jimmy, we're going no huddle. We're going to try to score. Happening again at the end of the game with the, the interception that wasn't an interception. Thank God the referees saw the holding call on, on Kittle. And it was, it was holding. It was a good call, but it was all the way across the field. It was third and one. And yes, if you get that first down, the game is essentially over or the Lions are going to have to use all their timeouts. Lions had all their timeouts at that point. It's third and one, and Kyle Shanahan calls a, a little dump off to Brita in the flat. That drives me nuts, Al, especially if it's in your own territory. If you can't gain one yard on third and one to win the game, I don't know what to tell you. You have to be able to gain that yard, and you have to do it on the ground. Because even if Alfred Morris took it and he was stopped for a loss of five yards, the Lions are still using a timeout, and they have one less timeout to work with. Because what happened in the end? They end up stopping the clock anyways So because of the penalty. Now, even if Brita catches it, he's probably going out of bounds, which stops the clock. Or if he drops it, it's incomplete, which stops the clock. It made zero sense to me how Kyle Shanahan ended the half and ended the game. And I think that he def- he has to get better at that. He has to. It drove me nuts. Nuts. That Matt Brita only had one carry after his 66-yard touchdown run. Mm-hmm. Matt Brita was dominating in this game. He was outstanding. Matt Brita is the leading rusher in the NFL. Can you believe that? After, That's awesome. after two weeks, mm-hmm. leading rush in the NFL, this guy has 184 yards on 22 carries. He's averaging 8.4 yards a carry. Even if you take out the 66 yard run, he's still averaging what six yards a carry, just about. Mm-hmm. It's outstanding. He has 210 yards from scrimmage on 26 touches, 8.1 yards per touch. Matt Breida was outstanding, outstanding. Mm-hmm. And I hope that they get him the ball. And you can make the argument, well, he's so good because, you know, they're only giving him 10, 11 touches, they're balancing it out well. Okay, to me, I'd like to see a guy who's averaging eight yards every touch, every time he touches the ball gets the ball more. Mm-hmm. That's what I have to say to that. Matt Breida was outstanding. I and I'm a huge Breida fan. I love the story. I, I just I, I love that he's an undrafted free agent. It's such a bright spot, and he was dynamic. He had three runs of over twenty yards. Zane, mm-hmm. you know how many runs Le'Veon Bell had of over twenty yards in 2017? How many? Three. Three. Wow. So Breida had just as many. 20 plus yard runs in that game as Le'Veon Bell had all year last year. Matt Breida is a huge bright spot. And yeah, I wanted to see him get the ball more and I want to see him get the ball moving forward for sure. He was, he was great. And I know, look, Alfred Morris is still going to get his carries, but to me, if you're going to split it up, I'd like to see like Breida touch the ball, running the ball about 15 times, maybe Morris like eight. Yeah. And I want to preface the response to the, the, this topic by, telling the Niners fans that I, we love this team. We love the 49ers. We want them to, to do well. So it's not about being negative. It's about giving analysis and, and our, our personal opinions on stuff. And while they might not be right, like we, we want the same thing that all of you want. We want them to be successful. We want them to win. And that being said, like, I'm not, I'm not the type of person to be overly negative, but if I see something that, that I think needs to be changed, I'll call it out. And I think that that's, what our listeners appreciate Al, is when we're open and honest and frank about things, right? We don't want to blow a bunch of smoke up people's butts because, because we're a 49ers podcast. We want to be realistic and we want to be able to share our knowledge and, and get feedback from people and just have a conversation, right? So that being said, I thought that the runs that Kyle Shanahan schemed for Matt Breida were 
really, really well done. Like so many of these were off tackle runs where he had either Richburg pulling or the offensive line was moving. And Brita was just basically like, Hey, pick a hole and go. And that fits him so well because he hits the hole so fast and he accelerates through there so fast that he, nobody can catch him. And that's why he had so many long runs, like the long touchdown run he had. That was a, that was a slow developing play for the offensive line at the beginning of it. If you watch the beginning of it, everybody's kind of moving to the right towards the right sideline, pulling a little bit. And there's a hole right between the guard and tackle that Brita squeezed through. And it was like the lines overplayed it and he cut back and there were, there were only like three guys that he had to beat. That play design was fantastic. And I hope Kyle Shanahan can do more of that. Like he is such a good play designer, like probably the best play designer in the league. Like I, I, I can't think of any, anybody better. And I hope that he, he kind of take note, takes notice of that. And he will, that the fact that Brito can be so dominant on those off tackle runs. And he even, I even saw a little bit of old Denver Broncos, like the old toss out to the flat and, and kind of pick your hole sort of thing that Terrell Davis used to do so well. I saw the 49ers do that in the first quarter. Brita had a long run in the first quarter that he's able to do. Alfred Morris had 14 carries for 48 yards, so he was pretty effective as well. And I really think that you're going to see another facet of Kyle Shanahan's offense that we weren't necessarily going to see this year with Jarek McKinnon is a lot of running between the tackles, a lot of involvement from the running backs. Alfred Morris even caught a couple of passes, which was awesome. They even threw it at him a couple, threw it at him a couple of times. So I think that he's, again, Kyle Shanahan, he's figuring out the limitations of his offense. But I think that once he gets all cylinders firing properly, it's going to be a really fun offense to watch, especially because you have two running backs with differing, differing skill sets like Alfred Morris and Matt Breida. Yeah, it will. And, and they're going to get it together. They're going to get it together. I don't think it's a perfect offense, but they certainly did fine last season. And like I said, they're, they're scoring points. So, you know, we're, we're voicing our frustrations. We think they can be better. And if they made certain moves, it could be better. But they're going to be okay. I, I do. I do have confidence that I know a lot of people are frustrated with Jimmy right now. I know a lot of people are frustrated with a lot of aspects of this offense, but I feel like it's it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, I don't know. I'm going to need a drink, but <laughs> um, I, I, f- I feel like it's going to get better. Now, defensively, could be some issues there, and I don't know what to make of it because I thought they played pretty well against Minnesota, man. I did. I thought that was a good defensive performance, and then you come out this week, and I'm like, oh, but here's what I think. The big goal, I guess you could say this week was, was, was Witherspoon, right? Mm. He was targeted 12 times. He gave eight catches for over a hundred yards and two touchdowns, but then it comes out. He kind of has a bum ankle. Something's up with his ankle. So if that's the case, all right, you got to kind of say if the guy's hurt, maybe he just had a bad day and he's going to get picked on with Sherman on the other side. He's going to get targeted a lot and he's going to give up catches. He's another guy you want to see grow this year. So I don't know how much stock I want to put into that. The other thing with the defense is, you, you've been having special teamers playing next to Fred Warner. Mm-hmm. So you have a rookie. Warner's a rookie. He's been really good, but he's a rookie. So you have a rookie linebacker, and then you have Brock Coyle and Elijah Lee. These guys are special teamers. They are not starting linebackers. Mm-hmm. So you've seen a lot of missed tackles with this defense. When Reuben Foster comes in, all of a sudden you're adding a blue-chip linebacker. You're adding a blue-chip player. That could really change things, especially with the tackling that's been so bad. Foster can have that kind of an impact. Now, the tackling does have to get better. The safeties have to start tackling better. What is going on with that? Mm-hmm. Tart, Tart and um, Colbert really have to start tackling better. But I, I feel that once Foster gets injected into this defense, it's going to be contagious. I think so, too. And I, I'm glad that you pointed out the fact that the linebacker group is just decimated by injuries. Elijah Lee, who was a nice player, 
in a special, a good special teams piece, he's forced to start. Like we're talking about the backup to the backup. Like that was, that's Ruben Foster's spot. Now, when he comes back, Brock Coyle was the backup. Brock Coyle is out. Now it's Elijah Lee that they had to promote to the starting lineup, who basically was, was a preseason guy that was starting in the fourth preseason game because all the starters were resting. So now you're having a situation where you're having to mix and match parts and it's causing a lot of confusion. And one of those, one of the example, many examples of that is that anytime, I don't know if you, you noticed Al, but anytime there's a Detroit receiver crossing over the middle, they were not passing him off to the next coverage guy. Like if the 49ers were playing zone, nobody was passing off the receiver. And Richard Sherman came on in the, in the post game here at, uh, on local Bay Area TV. And he mentioned how during the game, they weren't passing anybody off and they practiced it properly, but they weren't passing anybody off into the proper zones like they usually do. And I think that a lot of that is because there's guys who aren't used to playing together and the communication just isn't there. Like on the, the touchdown, the last touchdown that Detroit had to, I believe it was Marvin Jones had, had the touchdown. And it was, the, it, was, it was like a five-yard pass where Colbert was just a little bit late getting there. And um, it was one of those situations where, uh, no, sorry, it was, it was um, Roberts. And it was like three minutes left and it was their tight end and caught a 15 yard touchdown. And the, the 49ers had a zone. uh, They're playing zone for some reason. They weren't playing man. And Jimmy Ward covered the running back who came out into the flat. And I believe Elijah Lee went with him. So there's a linebacker and a running back covering the flat. The tight end released towards the, the corner of the end zone. Colbert was like just a fraction of a second late getting there. But to me, I'm like, why is Jimmy Ward jumping that flat? Why is he jumping the, the, the under route? Like, you have to make Stafford hold the ball like just a fraction of the second more, and Colbert would have been, would have been able to get there to either inter- intercept it or bat it away. But he was so aggressive that he jumped that under route, and he didn't stay with his man long enough to pass him off to Colbert, and that ended up being a touchdown. And it's things like that that are killing this defense. Like the, the Witherspoon touchdown at the beginning – where he was peeking in the, in the backfield for whatever reason, trying to give run support. And he yeah, let that the was brutal. Yeah, it was, was brutal. That was really bad. And the, and the tight end beat him to the, the pylon. It was just, you can't do that. And obviously in the, in the fourth quarter, Witherspoon had that rough series where he gave up a, I believe it was first down penalty, penalty first down. And then they, and, and they benched him after that and brought Jimmy Ward in. I, I feel like the aggressive nature of Robert Sala's defense is almost working against them because they're playing undisciplined at times. Like they're not maintaining gap integrity. They're not tackling well. Elijah Lee missed, actually missed a tackle on the, on that drive where Witherspoon gave up that touchdown on third down that would have basically got them off the field. So it, it kind of flipped that. It flipped the game for a little bit and gave the Lions their first touchdown. So they have some things to clean up with their young defense. Now, the things that they're doing really well, Richard Sherman has been just amazing on, on that right side. He's been so good. And I believe he had one pass thrown his way this game. He had two passes thrown his way in the Vikings game. He's, he's allowing the lowest completion percentage on the team. And he's, he's been everything that you've wanted him to be. He's playing at his pro Bowl level. They're not throwing at him. He even said that if Stafford threw it at him two or three times, he, he would have had probably two or three picks because he ran the route for the receiver. Now, I feel like they can be better with giving Witherspoon help, but at least one side of the field is shut down, and we know it's shut down. And how about, how about DeForest Buckner, man? I mean, that guy is unbelievable. DeForest Buckner was amazing again during that game. 
he looks like a defensive player of the year candidate. And, and we talked about him being that he's already got three and a half sacks mm-hmm. this season. And he's on his way to, to, to double digit sacks. He is absolutely dominating, mm-hmm. absolutely dominating. And that's one of the things to go back to the Cleo Mack thing. Like if, if you did bring somebody in like Mack and, and you made that move, could you imagine the two of them on the same defensive line? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, devastating, yeah. devastating. Can't block those two guys. I mean, the Niners pass rush would be out of this world. I, I do want to see him with somebody coming off the edge, man, because it would just make him all that much better. But yeah, he's he's been just terrific, just absolutely terrific, and he's carrying this defense. I mean, there's only he's got three and a half sacks. But the rest of the defense only has a sack and a half, and he just looks absolutely fantastic. He's a blue chip franchise player for the Niners, and mm-hmm. if Foster can come back and be that too, that's really exciting. It really is. It's such a good foundation to have on your defense, and as good as he's played. The scary thing to me is what's going on with Solomon Thomas, who's barely seeing the field, mm-hmm. barely seeing the field right now. And I don't know the reasons for that. I don't know if it's been a matchup thing. I don't know if he's injured. I don't know if the Niners saw something they didn't like. Cause I thought he had a pretty good preseason. I thought he was playing pretty well. And I was excited for him this year. I was excited to see him rush from the inside. And all of a sudden he's almost like a non-factor. That's one, man, if you spent the number number three overall pick on a guy that ends up being a rotational defensive lineman, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. So you got to think the Niners want 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 this to work. And I hope he sees more snaps. I do. I, I hope they give him the opportunity to make an impact, but I, I just don't know where he's headed right now. He played, I believe, 35 snaps out of the 77 defensive snaps. And the week before, he played 34. So he's roughly playing half of the time. Now I understand that some of that is is scheming and base packages versus more receivers and pass rushing things like that. But at the same time, you want more out of your number three pick. And I, I think it's too early to write him off. I think it's too early to call this pick a bust or anything because it takes time for these guys to develop. But I just think that they grossly overestimated what Solomon Thomas could do. And now they're kind of finding that out. The best place for him has always been next to DeForest Buckner. But the problem is, is that you have Earl Mitchell, who's been playing pretty well, and Sheldon Day, who provides excellent depth that can play next to Buckner. And frankly, you could put anybody next to DeForest Buckner and they're gonna be they're gonna be great because that's how good DeForest Buckner is. And but by the way, speaking of Buckner, did you see how he just decked LeGarrette Blunt on the yeah, sideline? That was great. That was great. I mean, LeGarrette Blunt is not a small man, and DeForest Buckner just just threw him like a rag. I, I can't believe how hard he hit him. And you don't see guys that big like LeGarrette Blunt get hit like that a lot. I was watching the game and, and I was, I was sitting next to my dad and I was like, man, I've never seen LeGarrette Blunt get hit like that. So you add, he, he just adds this, this different dimension to them. And I feel like if you put somebody next to DeForest Buckner, that person's game will also elevate. And I really want to see Solomon Thomas next to Buckner on all downs. I don't want Solomon Thomas rushing the passer anymore. That's not his forte. That's not his strength. We know mm-hmm. that. And Matt Mayoko came out actually before the game, before the game last week. And he, they asked him about, Solomon Thomas and he and he mentioned how Solomon Thomas he didn't think how Solomon Thomas was greatly above average at anything he thinks that he's he's a nice a nice player a good player but he doesn't think he's a, a star at anything and and I kind of tend to agree with that even when they pick Solomon Thomas like this guy's not going to be a cornerstone piece he's going to be a nice piece but he won't be a guy that you can build around and I think that John Lynch kind of overvalued what Solomon Thomas meant and hindsight's twenty twenty, but Al, like, how, how would you like to have a guy like Marshawn Lattimore or Leonard Fournette or anybody that was picked after Solomon Thomas? It would have been great. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and that pick. Jamal Adams. 
Jamal Adams, we were both critical of that, of the Salman Thomas pick from the first day. I'm not saying that it's not going to work out, but it's one of those ones that's a head scratcher that's turning out that exactly the way that you and I thought it would. It's he kind of doesn't really have a place on the line. Him and Eric Armstead are now they're now competing for snaps. And you can argue that Armstead is outplaying him. And regardless, not none of them are getting pressure from from the edge when they line him up out there. So they have an issue on the defensive line. And I don't know what they're going to do with Salman Thomas. Like you can't have your number three overall pick from last year become a, a rotational player and only his second year in the league. That's just mm-hmm. that's John Lynch's first pick as a GM. And granted, not all first round draft picks pan out, but just the psychological aspect of it. I mean, come on, man. You want to hit on on your first pick. Personally, I thought Ruben Foster should have gone three and maybe Solomon Thomas should have gone 31. Yeah, so, that's true. If you if you flip it around, you're probably like, okay. Yeah, exactly. If you flip it around, then then hey, that's that's not a big deal at all. But I mean, granted, draft position doesn't it is not should not be an indicator of how well a player should play, but you can't be missing on your top five picks and the jury is still out on him, and I was hoping to see more from him by this point. I'll tell you what, though, and I talked about this with stats, too. I love the way the rookies are playing on this yes. team, and I mm-hmm. think they're going to be around for a long time. The Niners made some good picks this year. McGlinchey's going to be solid on the line. Again, there's going to be ups and downs. Fred Warner looks like a stud. Him and Foster together, that speed, oof, I cannot wait to see it. Mm-hmm. And Pettis, while... while Listen, rookie receivers, you, ne- you never know what to expect. It's tough for rookie receivers. And he's already made some plays. He's made some big plays. He had the touchdown. He had the 35-yard reception. He, he's made some big plays. And he's going to have ups and down this, downs this year. You know, there's been some drops. And that, that's expected. He, he's going to grow this season. He, he really looks the part. I mean, he's got three catches for, what, 96 yards? It's 33 yards a catch. Mm-hmm. He looks like a big play guy. Hopefully, he can get some consistency. But And then DJ Reed with the, with the return. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you see him flying down the field? That was great. That was awesome. When and this is one of the things that that we were talking about when he was drafted that, that he has that kick return ability. And I think I even tweeted it out in the preseason how they they were starting to play DJ Reed on special teams, and that that may be his spot. He was the number two overall punt returner in NCAA last year. Obviously, Dante Pettis was number one, but DJ Reed, like he he has a burst when he took that kickoff down the sideline. Like he hit another gear that nobody nobody else on the field had. And he hit that hole so fast. He was decisive. He looks like he's sure-handed. He, he can play corner as well. So I, he adds a lot of versatility. And the rest of the rookies in, in this class, like there's a lot of potential. The, the top, so if you look at the top rookies in this class, McGlinchey's playing significantly. Pettis is playing significantly. Warner is getting a lot of snaps. And obviously the, the fourth round pick is Contavious Street and he, he had the ACL and he's not playing. But all of these top round picks are getting significant playing time and they're all playing pretty well. So all the credit goes to John Lynch and Adam Peters and Martin Mayhew for getting these guys in and scouting them. And even you look to last year's draft, the same thing happened where all of those draft picks, most of them had some sort of role minus Joe Williams, obviously, but most of those draft picks had some sort of significant, significant role on, on the team. And I really think that you're going to see guys like DJ Reed get more playing time. Once they sort out the corner situation, you may see a guy like Julian Taylor, get some time to try to try to bolster this pass rush. You may see James get Richie James, get some snaps as well because they really need help with receiver too. So I think that the drafting has been really, really done really, really well. Minus, you know, a couple of misses with the, the, the Joe Williams pick and possibly Solomon Thomas. I think that they've been really, really 
good at finding fits for every single player that they draft. So that's one thing that, that I'm really, really happy with amongst the many things I'm happy with with John Lynch is his drafting and his ability to find guys that can fit in Kyle Shanahan's offense. I just, I, I mean, when DJ Reed out, when he, when he hit that hole, I was like, I have to talk to Al about this. Cause that's one of, that's one of our guys, DJ Reed that we've been talking about that we've been really yeah. impressed with. Who's your game ball going to? So my game ball is going to go to DeForest Buckner and he had, he had another sack. He was dominant again on the defensive line. Um, the 49ers gave up as a team less than hundred yards rushing. They gave up 98 yards rushing. They were really good at the point of attack. Um, they, they held the lines to 13 points for three quarters of the game and kind of relaxed at the end. But DeForest Buckner is the anchor. He is the MVP of that defense and he is going to get my game ball. Mine's going to Matt Burita. He was dynamic in week two. Like I said, he had the three runs of 20 plus yards, 20 yards or more. Scored the 66 yard touchdown that really kind of gave the Niners the game. I think it, it put them up 27 to 13, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Just a huge run. And on that drive, I mean, they were pinned down in their own end zone. And <laughs> Burita had two carries for 86 yards. It was a three play, 96 yard scoring drive. Mm-hmm. Rita had two carries for 86 yards. He's been great. I, I mean, everybody who knows me or follows me knows I'm a huge Brita guy. I always have been mm-hmm. huge on Brita. I, I don't know if he's ever going to be a 20 carry guy. I don't, I don't think that, but someone who touches the ball 10, 15 times, I think he can be dynamic and he's showing that he can be. And I, I, I was really happy for him. Really happy that he came out and I'm really happy that he's getting some national attention. I saw he was on NFL network um, this week as well. So He's getting my game ball. I thought that he made the plays to put the offense over over the top to really give the Niners the win. That mm-hmm. that run sealed the deal for them. So it's definitely going to Brita. And to me, I hope we see him touch the ball a lot more moving forward. Likewise, he was he was dynamic. He was awesome. And I don't think a lot of people we knew it, but I don't think a lot of people in national media expected to see that out of him. So uh to, to just to wrap up this, the, the thoughts on this game before we move on to our next game predictions, Al, I thought that they could have done some things better. They did some, they were dominant at times and you really saw what they, they, the potential is for this team on both sides of the ball. I just think that they just need to put together a full game and I'm very happy about a win. A win is a win. And no matter what time it comes at, it's always good to get a win. Whether you win by three points or a hundred points, it's counts the same in the, in the win loss column. And when you get your first win in the second week of the season, looking back to last year, after you got your first win in the 10th week of the season, it's, it's huge. And I think that they're just scratching the surface. So I'm super excited. I'm really excited to see what they can do. I'm glad that they took care of a team that they were supposed to take care of. Next week is another challenge in Kansas City. It's going to be a tough game. I mean, Kansas City's been, at least offensively, uh, just dominating. Patrick Mahomes has what ten touchdown passes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey, Sammy Watkins, Kareem Hunt. There's just weapons everywhere. It's going to be really tough for the Niners to stop them, especially if they're going to get pressure on Mahomes. If they can't get pressure on Mahomes, forget about it. And Kansas City is a tough place to to play. The saving grace is that Kansas City defense is terrible. Mm-hmm. They've given up over a thousand total yards already. It's week two. You know, for two weeks, a thousand total yards wow. and over 860 yards have been passing yards. And I know they've been ahead in games, so it kind of turns into a shootout. The other team's passing that sort of thing, but you can move the ball on them. You can score on them. So if the Niners can get a couple of turnovers here, they're going to be able to move the ball and score. So who knows? I just think for me going to Kansas city, the way they're playing right now is going to be really tough. I, I got to chalk this one up as a loss. It's going to be a difficult game. If, if they come through and win this game, 
I'm singing a totally different tune. If they, yeah, if they is... go into Kansas City and win, that's a gigantic win, the way that Kansas City's playing. But I think right now it's going to be, I, I just think offensively there's too much speed there. I, I think it's going to be a high-scoring game, but the Niners will probably come out on the losing end of it. This is another one of those measuring stick games, and I loathe the NFL right now for doing this to the 49ers. They gave them another home opener to the, the second in three weeks in a really tough environment to a perennial playoff team. And they're going to do it again next week. It's not a home opener for the Chargers next week. But again, next week, you go to San Diego, another playoff team or team that, that's looking to make the playoffs contend. They're, the entire bulk of the difficult part of the schedule is in the first half of the season. And I don't know why the NFL did that. And it was, the, it was really stupid because now there's no balance to the schedule. Really, this is supposed to be a third-place schedule. Now, if the 49ers really don't win in, in any of these games, I think they will, but if, let's say they, they don't win any of them, you're going into the bye week like one and six or two and five or, or whatever it is. Like you, the NFL screwed the Niners. Basically they did. They screwed them in the first half of the season. So now all you can do is really try to do your best to come out of this six game stretch, which you also go to green Bay and play Aaron Rodgers three and three. This is one of those games where it's out. I mean, this is really, really hard to see the 49ers win because and that's not because the 49ers are bad or anything i just think that kansas city it's their first game of the season arrowhead is the loudest stadium in the league you got patrick mahomes who i think is probably due for a bad game here and there like he's not gonna he's not gonna spend the entire year not throwing an interception i think he probably will throw one or two this game you have a kansas city offense that's number they're actually number two in the league to tampa bay right now as of the recording of the show but you've got they're basically putting up points at will but on the flip side, you also have their defense too that that's played really poorly. But Al, the problem is is that Kansas City's played two road games and they played at Pittsburgh and they played at San Diego, which are two really tough places to play. And both of those teams have really marquee players on offense. You've got Keenan Allen in San Diego and you've got obviously Antonio Brown in, in Pittsburgh. The 49ers don't have a guy like that on their offense. So that's what kind of counteracts the fact that their defense is terrible, that they don't have a guy that can take the top off the defense and be dominant. Now, will that make a difference? I don't know. I'm what I'm hoping for here. Look, when I went into the season, I wanted incremental progress in the 49ers. I said that I'm, I'm on record saying that you're not going to see this gigantic growth spurt that you saw at the end of last year. You'll see gradual progress. This past week was a little bit of gradual progress against Detroit. I'm looking for, and the week before that was a little bit of gradual progress against Minnesota because they hung in there. I'm looking for the same sort of thing, just the needle to be pointing up. Just keep the game in check. The way you're going to win it is you're going to keep the ball out of Andy Reid's offense's hands. You're going to have to control the clock. You'll have to run the ball successfully. They have a really good pass rush. They have one of the better pass rushes in the league. Their secondary isn't that that good, so you can possibly exploit that. But the way that you're going to win this game is you're going to have to take eat up a lot of time on the clock, a lot of plays, take what the defense gives you, and keep the ball out of Patrick Mahomes' hand. I think I, I think it's going to be a loss. This is one of those that I chalked up as a loss before the season started because it's such a tough game. But I'm hoping that they can keep it close. So I'm going to give you a score, and I think it'll be. I don't think Kansas City is going to have trouble putting up points. I think they're probably going to score 28 points, 20 30 points. It'll probably be 28 to maybe the Niners can get a late touchdown, 21, um, and keep it within one score. I'm hoping that they can. So I'm going to go with 28 21 uh, for Kansas City. What about you? Um, I'll say like 38, 30 Kansas city. Really? I think it's, I think it's gonna be really high scoring. 
Well, yeah. I mean, e- even then, like if that's the case, then you can say that the 49ers are still scoring a lot of points. And again, it's another positive to take away because that's really what you can do. Yeah. When you really get screwed over by the, the schedule, you really just have to weather the storm and hope that the, the second half of the schedule, which is softer, you can get into it healthy and also with a record that's around 500. So um, I think, yeah, we're, we're kind of both in agreement on this one. Well, we'll see what happens. And remember, you know, feel free to tweet at us during the game. You know, Zane and I are all about that. Love interacting with the fans at Zane49ers and at AlSacco49. And we will be back next week to react to everything that happened. Uh, talk about the Chargers game that's coming up and everything else that's going on in Ireland. So until then, uh, this is for, for Zane. This is Al. We'll talk to you soon. Peace.